0: Thank you for being with us today. Um, I know that uh, these are some trying uh, times. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we are not meeting as a congregation, so this is somewhat abnormal for us, but we are glad that you are with us today, that we may share with you God's Word and be encouraged by what we read from the Apostle Paul. We will continue our study today uh, in the book of Galatians, and we encourage you to follow along with us in your Bible. if. If you are able, uh, turn to your Bible to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. 15 through 29, or 15 through the end of the chapter of Galatians. The book of Galatians, one of the letters from the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia. We continue to read and study this. Please join me in hearing the word of God from Galatians chapter 3. 15 through verse 29. Paul says, "...to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ." This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant promise, promise previously excuse me, ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been Made And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you were all. Sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, as we come to you in our own homes, in our cars, wherever we are listening to you and your word, we pray now, O Lord, that you would use these very words, the words of your preacher, no more than a man, a broken vessel with his own transgressions. Lord, that you would perfect these words, that the words today would be the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they would enter our ears, that they would pierce our hearts, they would encourage us, not by what we currently believe to be true, but by re- revealing truth to us, God's truth, that stands above with all authority, from the one who is and was and is to come, and in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen and amen. How do you view God? During these trying times, maybe with the isolation or your hospitalization or with all of your world just interrupted, we often turn to God. We often look to the Almighty, wonder, and ask many, many questions of the creator, the sustainer of life. Where are you, O God? What are you doing, O God? And sometimes when we come with this approach, which may not necessarily be a bad thing, we often come with an answer. We answer for God rather than letting God answer himself so this morning i would ask what is your view of god and then i would follow that up with is that view the god of the bible is your view maybe another way to put it is your view of god the right view of god is it true Follow along with me this morning as we go through these verses, and I ask that you would have on your mind your view of God as we see revealed to us who God actually is. As many of you know, if you know anything about me, you will know that I'm a huge baseball fan, and above all of the turmoil and everything going on, the one thing that has been delayed that is somewhat of a... Uh, a problem for me is, is very troubling is having spring in the air, yet not being able to watch baseball or to participate in baseball or to read about baseball or have anything about baseball presented other than the season has, again, been uh, suspended, postponed until a later date. In other words, this is the time of year in which we should have spring training and opening day. As a kid, I always looked forward to opening day. As an adult, I still do, with many reservations. Yet, there's something about this time of year for me. It brings back a lot of memories. I get excited. One of those memories uh, that I'm most excited about and think about was is this opening day in which. Uh, The season hadn't quite started. It was in between spring training and opening day season. I don't remember the exact year that this took place, but uh, Chattanooga, where we lived at the time, began their minor league season by inviting two major league baseball teams to come and to open their new park. At the time, the park was transitioning and uh, moving up uh, more on the hill into town there. And they created this huge ballpark, and this ballpark uh, was named Bell South Park. Um, obviously, that was the sponsor. And at Bell South Park, there were two major league baseball teams that were coming to town. So you could imagine these, these two teams coming into town. Tickets were a premium, uh, they were done, I think, by lottery. Uh, the, the prices were astronomical. I had no way of going. Uh, and could not get tickets. Uh, and had no desire to spend that kind of money on these tickets. Yet I remember the pastor at the church, one of the associate pastors actually, who uh, married Linda and I, called me up one day and said, hey listen, I've got tickets to this game and I, I know that you're a huge fan of baseball and, and one ticket was for my son but he can't go. He's got another obligation and so I was asking um, around and and everybody said, you know, Hank really loves baseball, and I think he would probably benefit from this the most. And at the time, we were working with the youth group, and so people knew who we were and my affinity for the sport. And so, this gracious, loving man invited me to go with him. And what a joy it was for many reasons, and I'll tell you why. One was that there major league team that was coming, two teams. One was the Baltimore Orioles, in which Cal Ripken was still playing at the time. And always thought I would love to go to Baltimore and watch Cal Ripken play ball. And so he was actually coming to my hometown. This was going to be a joy and an honor and a privilege. And I thought how awesome it would be. And then the other team was going to be the... Um, team that was affiliated with this minor league team, the Cincinnati Reds, and and I had become a Reds fan uh, somewhat over time because of this affiliation, more a uh, fact that I got to see a lot of these guys in minor league and go up to the major leagues, and I was very excited about this game. So getting to see Cal Ripken Jr. play ball, and then on the red side, Ken Griffey Jr. play ball. Ken Griffey Jr. was one of the early athletes that I was able to see and follow from minor league to major league and and really be excited about baseball and, and seeing the connection between the two leagues. What I didn't know, though, at the time was my view of Ken Griffey Jr. and my view of Cal Ripken Jr. were going to be shattered over this event. One would be shattered, actually, and one would be stoked. The fire would be encouraged. You see, these are two different players in how not only how they play the game, but how they conduct themselves personally. And this was, for me, a very eye-opening experience. You see, Cal Ripken, Jr., I was able to to meet, uh, kind of, (laughs) as he came off of the bus. And we were standing in line to greet them, me and a bunch of my fellow Chattanoogans were standing there and clapping and and behind the little rope able to almost reach out and touch Cal Ripken and he he walks by with a smile as we said, welcome to Chattanooga." his response was, well, thank you very much, it's great to be here. And I thought, there is a class act. This man is top notch. I can't wait to see him play ball today. But then when the Reds came up, they parked in the back, did not come in like the Orioles. I mean, I remember almost vividly the, the members of the team, the Mike Lucina and, and many others coming through who were Brady Anderson, and the list goes on and on, who were Orioles, actually the visiting team. And I was excited, I was stoked that these men were so gracious and kind and walked through This line on both sides, and then the Reds parked in the back. They did not come with such fanfare, and I thought, well, maybe that's just because there's an affiliation here, and they want to um, not be bothered. They have a game to play, although it is somewhat of a scrimmage. It doesn't count for anything, and so I wonder. And so as we go into the park, uh, we finally get ready to get the game started, and We're still there early enough that we can see the warm-up. Well, the next thought I had was I would love to meet Ken Griffey Jr. like I think I met Cal Ripken Jr. And yet, as the Reds players came out, there was a distance between us and um, kind of where the players would come out. But I stood there anyway, and I was able to to almost reach out. They were a little further away than the Orioles were coming in, but I was able to still feel like I, I was getting to meet these guys and was excited to do so. And one after one, they would come out, yet there was one that never came out. There was one that never came to the dugout via this door that all the other players came out. No, as a matter of fact, to avoid the crowd... This one player, Ken Griffey Jr., who I had hoped to meet and and kind of looked forward to engaging in some distant conversation, actually went out through the bullpen and to avoid the crowd came out in midfield and down through the grass to the dugout, engaging no fan whatsoever. Now growing up I knew that Ken Griffey Jr. was not real good with the media, uh, I wasn't sure how he was with the fandom, but it was obvious to me that day that my view of Ken Griffey Jr. had changed. My view of Cal Ripken Jr. had been encouraged top-notch. And this is not to be despairing in any way, disparaging in any way against Ken Griffey Jr., what it says more about is my view of people. That my view of people may not be true. My view of Kim Griffey Jr. was false. I thought him to be a man who would engage the crowd and be excited that those people came to see him play ball that day. Rather... I now had a problem. The problem was that I had lifted up a man and had a view of him that was not true. Brothers and sisters, don't we do that with God? Don't we look at God and say, whatever comes into our heart, whatever comes into our mind, whatever we think, whatever we feel, that then must be true about God because that's how I see God. That's something that we see in this postmodern world that we all have a view of God and and as we get into a room and start that discussion that that view of God may not be the same. We all may have our own version of God and maybe you've heard it captured that way. That I have a version of God and you have your version of God and the, the two may not be similar. More importantly, they may not be who God actually is. We impose our view on God rather, rather than listening to who he says that he is. See, here is our problem, even in the church today. We take our imposition, the way that we view God, and we impose it on him rather than listening to who he says that he is. God is the author of. And reveal her to his people. God reveals to us who he is. And he does so plainly in scripture. We need not look any further than the word of God, the holy Bible, to see who God truly is. That's why I think Psalm 46.10 is important. You're probably very familiar with the psalm and I would encourage you to meditate on it and reflect upon it. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Why is this verse so important? Well, it's so important, especially by way of introduction and getting us prepared for Galatians because rather than imposing on God or approaching God or trying to apprehend God or comprehend God uh, by way of our own actions, what God actually says in Psalm 46 is, listen, stop, be still, and know that I am God. What really happens here is that if we are still and quiet and we listen, what are we listening to? Scripture, we will find out who God is. So many times we take our own attempts, our own time, and our own energy. You see, this is what I like about this turmoil time of isolation where we are told to stay at home and keep our distance. Social distancing is a thing now in America, in the world. And most of us are abiding by it. Some of you are doing so today and listening to this sermon, and it's great. And maybe this is God's point in all of this, why he's allowing all of this, so that maybe some of us will, who are very noisy people, will be still and know that he is God. This is the kind of situation that we find ourselves in when we read about the psalmist from Psalm 42 and 43. You remember, go back and read those psalms with me. Psalm 42 and 43. I I believe they go together. The theme is the same. Whether you read them separately or not, it's irrelevant. But read them together. And notice the theme of this downcast soul, of this psalmist whose spirit is down because of all the turmoil in the world, all the things going on around him. And he has a, a a verse in there that talks about the challenges from the world, and we hear this in the world, and maybe you're hearing it now. Anytime there's a uh, natural disaster or some uh, terrorist attack, and, and probably during this coronavirus, we're hearing, "Where is your God?" That's the sermon the psalmist heard that very day. Where is your God? We have challenges from. The rest of the world. And yet here we are trying to be faithful Christians saying, well, well, let me answer that. and Let me tell you who God is. But in reality, sometimes we ourselves need to sit and be still and ask the question, where is our God? Another way you can ask that or another question that you can ask is who is our God. Who is it that we say that we have placed our faith and our trust? Is it the God that I have created in my own heart, in my own mind? If so, that's an idol. Or is it the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the God who I can read about? So this morning as we're going into this passage in Galatians, I want us to wrestle with this idea of God. Is it our own idea of God? Is it our idol that we call God? Or is it truly God? Because what Paul relays to the church in Galatia is who God is. And he's very clear in who God is and why we should understand that our faith needs to be placed into who God is and not who we have created him to be. So let's look at three things this morning as we look at who God is in these passages of Galatians. Is our view of God right Or is there some need for adjustment? The first thing I want us to see as we look at who God tells us that he is, is he is a God of promise. A God of promise. In verse 15, we read Paul giving this human example to his fellow brothers in Christ. And he starts off with this covenant. And he says, even in a man-made covenant. Now, many of us don't understand covenant. But in the context of scripture, we see covenant covenant. Over and over, we see covenants that God makes with his patriarchs, with people of purpose and major characters in the Bible. And in this one, if you have not uh, been listening for long, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon as we went through Galatians 3, 1 through 9. And we talked about Abraham and this covenant that God made with Abraham. And this thought continues through verse 10 and through uh, 14 and what it means to be a part of this covenant. We've been preaching and teaching on that. You can go back and listen to those. But this idea of covenant is in a covenant with Abraham that has been established. And Paul uses this and says even a man-made covenant, an agreement between two people. He says, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, once the seal has been placed on this covenant, this agreement, some of us may uh, understand that uh, you know, back in the day that if we shook on it, that that meant something. That was our covenant promise to keep whatever agreement that we had. And if one of us broke that, then our, our word was no longer good. We were no longer to be trusted. That's the same idea here that, that man made a covenant with one another and they would agree to things. And once the hand handshake took, pl- took place, it was ratified. And nothing undid that, nothing annuls that or adds to it. If you do add to it, there needs to be a new covenant, a new handshake. And then in verse 16, he goes on, and he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So he's telling us which covenant is being spoken to. Now here's something new that we may not be used to, because sometimes we don't really understand these covenants. Paul then goes on to say, it does not say, he starts in the negative, it does not say, and to offspring. In other words, it does not go on to your whole family. This is a very important distinction here. Although the covenant is a family bond, Paul is very careful to not get into this idea that everyone is a child of God because they are a child of Abraham. That's not the point. He's speaking more of the covenant that God makes through his Holy Spirit and through faith and belief. Again, we preached on that last week and go back to the previous sermons and listen. But what he's saying here is, is that it doesn't refer to many, but, he says, referring to one, that the text actually says the covenant with Abraham was and to your offspring. And then he tells us who that offspring is. Who is Christ? The Jesus Christ of the gospel, which Paul has been talking about in this book of Galatians, he is the one who is the offspring. He is the one by which this covenant promise came to the people of God. First to the Jews, then secondly to the Gentiles. That's going to be Paul's point. He says in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What's Paul saying here? Paul is basically saying again what we talked about in the previous verse, what he talked about in the previous verses, what we preached on in the previous ver- verses, which is the covenant promise that God made to Abraham had nothing to do with the law. Because if, if that's the promise, then you would have salvation through the promise. I'm sorry, you would have salvation through the law. If the law was the promise, or the law was the means by which the promise would come, then That would need to be the means by which you would inherit that promise. But no, the means by which Abraham inherited this promise is through Christ. And so Paul is continuing his thought as we have been looking at the previous verses, this idea of law versus gospel or law versus Christ. Christ was the promise given to Abraham. And this promise is what's very important to Paul and very important to our faith. And that's Paul's point. That our inheritance as children of God does not come through the law. The the promise comes through Jesus Christ. The promise is Jesus Christ. You see the difference? The law is not what saves, Paul continues his thought. He says at the end of verse 18, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Gave him what? The inheritance. The inheritance, salvation, eternal life, adoption into the kingdom. All of these things come through Jesus Christ, not through the law. That's an important distinction. Is the God that you believe in a God who is all about law, about rules and regulations? Some of us live our life by rules and regulations. Some of us are very... Very legalistic. And we think that we are being biblical. We think that we are being children of God. But rather we are being contrary to the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible didn't give the law until 430 years after the promise to Abraham. After the promise, it says. This is what I mean. Verse 17: the law which came forty and thirty years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So a covenant That God says, I am going to give you, I promise you salvation. I promise you redemption. The law doesn't come afterward then and nullify what God has already promised. You see, the God of the Bible is a God of promise. God makes promises. Anytime you read through scripture and you see and hear about the covenants, you know that God starts with a promise. Some of us have made the law the main point. That God is a God of law and rule and regulations. He is a God who does things by law. but The law's purpose is not salvation. The law's purpose is something different. What is it? Well, let's look at point number two. We have a God of promise, but now we have a God of faith. Paul goes on to say what the law's purpose actually is. Is not He starts off with this negative to say, listen, God is a God of promise. He's not a God of the law. The law wasn't there to save. No, the inheritance is Christ Jesus. That's where we start. And then in verse 19, he goes on and assumes that you're going to ask the question, why then the law? If God is a God of promise, why do we need the law? Why do we need the law? The God that we have before us is a God of promise. So why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. What's his point? God is a God of faith. The promise that has been given is not whether or not you keep the law. The law was given so that we may see our transgressions. Without the law, we do not even know that we are sinners. Again, I I hearken you back to last week when we talked about the three uses of the law, the law as a mirror to point us to Christ. As Calvin articulates, the law that restrains the unbeliever, the second use of the law, and then the third use as our teacher. Those who obey Christ and have faith in Christ, the law has a purpose to teach us what is right and what is wrong. So the law here again is articulated so that we may know that we are transgressors so that we may know that we need a savior so that we may know that the inherited promise is necessary that jesus christ must be our redeemer why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made in other words because of sin, because of what Adam and original sin, because of the fall, what had happened in the garden, there needed to be someone to pay the price, to be the curse for us, to hang on a tree so that we may be free from being under the law. There had to be something for us to come out from under. The offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And those That have received the promise through Abraham, received faith in Jesus Christ, to those the inheritance then is salvation. Jesus Christ, our Lord, his work being applied to the believer, to our life. He goes on in verse 21 then. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This is important. Get this. Is the law contrary then to the promises of God? In other words, is the law somehow, if it doesn't ratify the covenant, is it somehow in opposition to the covenant? And he says, certainly not, verse 21. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law does not bring righteousness. Again, We read last week, verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. But the scriptures, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin. You see, here's the purpose of the law. The scripture here, Paul is referring to the Pentateuch, the law of God given to his people. He imprisoned everything under sin, he says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, the law was given some, in a sense, to bind. The law was given so that, it was kind of a curse for those who broke it again if you don't have a covenant understanding you're going to miss this there are blessings and curses curse for disobedience blessings for obedience the point here is the law was given to show that you cannot be obedient that you did that you definitely needed a savior in your life to save you who could be obedient and that one who is obedient is jesus christ therefore the point here at the end of verse 22 is so that the promise would come by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, we have a God of faith. The requirement to come back into a right relationship with God, to be placed in a relationship with God that that is not destructive or that removes us from the presence of God, one that restores that is actually a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I would not be doing my job if I didn't say this to each and every one of us, that if you are depending on the law to save you or something else to save you, you're missing the point. Paul amplifies his point over and over and over, and he does it again. The promise, the promise of eternal life, the promise of salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ and is given to those who believe. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater news this morning that you could hear with everything going on around you, isn't that the greatest news? That, that it's faith in Jesus Christ alone by which you can be saved. God is a God of faith. God is a God of promise. He's a God of faith. And lastly, he is a God of adoption. What does all of this mean? That if I am one who believes in Jesus Christ, I am now a child of God. I am now a child of God. <clears throat> God is a God of... Of adoption. He's a God of promise, a God of faith, and a God of adoption. The rest of these verses lay this out very neatly. Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Again, this idea of being under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And now that that faith has been revealed and in whom we are to place our faith, what then is the result? Those who believe in Jesus Christ then, he says, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now there seems to be in our own life sometimes confusion as to what God is doing and what God is teaching us and what the, what, why God is holding us accountable for certain things and why we are called sinners. And sometimes we are very confused at how that works. And I want to dispel a couple things and then I want to say one thing. This is not faith versus sin. It's not if you have enough faith, you are less of a sinner and therefore God accepts you. No, no, no. That's contrary to what we are reading here and what Paul is saying. No, what Paul is saying is you are adopted into God's family. You are a part of the family. You are a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a very important distinction. It is not that if you have more faith, God will bless you. It's not how this works. As a matter of fact, he says, no, you, are, you were at once under the law. Now you are not under the law. You see, if, if it were about the law, then yes, I would say, if your faith uh, ebbs and flows, then, then somehow God is going to bless you and, and keep things back. No, that's not, that's not it at all. As a matter of fact, faith of a mustard seed is what is required from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, if you have the faith ever so small, You are a child of God. You believe in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you are now adopted into the family with brothers and sisters who also have faith of a mustard seed. Who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so the law at that point is no longer something that we're under. It's no longer a part of a curse. The law then is our guardian. It was Paul saying, listen, until Christ came, the law was our guardian. And Christ tells us, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, so the law doesn't go away. It's not necessarily nullified, but it is, in a sense, ratified because Christ kept the law, and we are no longer under that law, so that we might be justified by faith. We preached on that a couple weeks ago, justified by faith. We are declared righteous through Jesus Christ. He is the promise that we have received. And so the law does in a sense, become our guardian until faith is wrought in us and we become children of God. And I don't want to get into timeline and how that might look, but let me illustrate this for you. I heard a story about a local young man. Uh, This young man used to be a part of uh, a youth community, a youth uh, group in a church, in our local church, and uh, he used to actually be a part of this youth group. And this young man, probably many of us wouldn't even know or remember if I said his name. And I won't because I don't really have his permission to tell this story. And I heard this story from someone else. He had not shared it with me himself. But the story goes something like this. This young man was driving down the road and going a little fast and had friends in the car. He swerved and ended up hitting a fence, a fence that belonged to the owner of the property. And so now this young man had to make a choice. This young man's choice was to run, hide, or to knock on the door, to do one of a multitude of things, as a young man might do in this scary situation. And as he thought through this in a split second, his friends actually bailed on him and all ran. He, however, seemed to make the right choice. His choice was to go to the owner of the property and to apologize, and to own up to his mistake. And the person that told me this story shared with me that they believed... This was because, and the owner of the property, who, again, I will not name, believes that this man made the right choice because he had the law of God in his heart. That somehow his involvement with our church, our youth group, God had worked the law in his life so that he knew what was right and what was wrong. Running was not an option, and so he owned up to it. That's how it works for the Christian. That's how it worked in the time before Christ came, is what Paul is saying, is that that God had written the law so that we might know what is right and what is wrong. Not that it would save us, but we would know what God expected of us. But he says, now that Christ has come, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It is through faith that we become adopted. God is a God of adoption. And when this happens, the rest of these verses are very well understood and well known and well um, repeated by many of us. It says, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? You have received through faith, because of Christ, because of faith in Christ, you have received the inheritance which was promised to Abraham and promised to you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news. You have put on Christ. And so, therefore, have been adopted into a family where, guess what? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Nobody works for anybody. Nobody owns anybody. There's not a distinction between classes or sexes, nationality, social status. None of that matters in the family of God because you are adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what a great verse Paul uses to finish this out. In verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Wow. All of this is the God of the Bible. A God God, who is a God of promise, not of rules and regulations. A God who is a God of faith, not of rules and regulations. A God of adoption, not about social status. All of this leads us a few applications in closing during these times this time of coronavirus and isolation and social distancing here's what I would encourage you to do and to glean from these passages I would encourage you to number one turn to the God of the Bible not the God of your own creation not the God that you have developed in your own heart and your own mind this is who I think God is A little bit from Facebook, a little bit from uh, the Bible, a little bit from television, a little bit from my own thoughts, and a little bit from a book over here. No, no, no. The God of the Bible. That's who you are to believe in. That's who you are to put your trust in. A God who is a God of promise. Now, many of us understand what it means to hold a promise or to to put... a promise out there for someone. But more than that, most of us understand what it means to be betrayed by someone who promised to You have someone in your life, I am sure, more than likely in your own family, who has promised you something. And I guarantee you, they have let you down. You have looked up to them. You have looked to them for this promise. And they have let you down. And you feel betrayed. And you're angry. And you're upset. God is not like that. Don't impose your view of that individual onto God and say, God, are you upset with me? Are you somehow withholding your promise from me? No, God is a God of promise. And if you believe in his son, Jesus Christ, through faith, then guess what? You believe in the God of the Bible. During these times, I would encourage you to pray to God. You have all the access in the world to go to God, to listen to him, be still. You know, in our prayer time, one of the things that we do most is talk. And what we really need to do is listen. Listen. How about just sitting there in prayer and listening to God, reading his word, meditating on his word? Lord, am I being still? Do I believe you're the God of the Bible? Do I believe that you are God of promise and that that you won't let me down? Do I truly believe that? Because brothers and sisters, if you don't believe that God is a God of promise, you are not believing the God of the Bible. Secondly, a God of faith. Not a God who requires you to be obedient. Not a God who is keeping score. But a God who says, is your faith in my son Jesus Christ and his work for your life? Do you accept this free offer given to you? Again, the faith of a mustard seed. Brothers and sisters, lastly, a God of adoption. A God who says, you know what? I don't care how much money you have. I'm not worried about your social well-being. I'm not worried about where you are in life. I'm not worried about which job you hold. I'm not worried about how much money you have. I'm not worried about the family that you came. I'm not even worried about what you have done in your current life and your situation. I don't care if you're sitting in prison. I I don't care if your faith is in me, in Jesus Christ, my son, and you're in my family. Where None of that matters. We're all equals in the eyes of God. Maybe you're from a broken family. Maybe you don't even know what family is because your mom has never been around. Your dad has never been around. Maybe you were raised by some stranger that you call mom or dad. I don't know your current situation, but here's the reality. None of that is how God operates. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who says, if you believe in my son Jesus Christ, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. I would encourage you to take this time of turmoil and isolation to reflect not on the God, your God, but on the God of the Bible, God of promise, God of faith, a God of adoption. If you don't know him as you should, be still and listen to who he says in these verses in Galatians and in the rest of the Bible. Be encouraged. God is a God of promise to whom the only requirement is faith in his son, Jesus Christ, in which the heir which you have become is received adoption. You can be a child of God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your word, for your truth. We ask that you would use it in our heart and in our life, that you would mold us and make us. And Lord, if there are those who don't know you as their personal Savior, I would ask, O Lord, that they would call upon your name now and put their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, not as Jesus of Nazareth, but as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was hanged on a tree that we may be free from this curse of the law. Bless your people, O Lord, during this time. May they learn to trust in you, the God of the Bible. May they remove from their own heart a God which they have created. Bless them, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have postponed and canceled all of our services here at Thompson Presbyterian Church, so I would encourage you to go to our website, thompsonpresbyterian.org. Uh, and to keep up with uh, how you can join us for worship if you so choose and so desire. We would love to have you. We will keep you up to date as to when we come back together as a body of believers, as a family adopted into God's kingdom, and we rejoin worshiping him and fellowshipping together. And so now I would ask God's blessing on you that he may keep you through this benediction. Hear the word of God as we close today. Now may God be your exceeding joy. Christ, your unfailing hope, and the Spirit, your unfailing comforter, and all your worship and work and troubles until Jesus comes again. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you safe.